we all found out there'd been an accident and they weren't sure who'd survived and what had happened. Like countries all around the Indian Ocean, it's struggling to deal with the catastrophe caused by the earthquake and the tsunami it created. Aid workers now expect the number of dead to rise to well over 100 times. We'll also be talking to some of the key figures organizing the aid effort, by far the biggest ever mounted. This evening, President Bush said America had formed a coalition with India, Australia and Japan to coordinate relief and reconstruction efforts. On the 2nd of April, 2005, a Royal Australian Navy Westland Sea King helicopter crashed on the Indonesian island of Nias. Of the 11 personnel on board, nine died. Six were members of the Royal Australian Navy and three were from the Royal Australian Air Force. The accident occurred while the Royal Australian Navy were providing humanitarian support following the devastating 2004 Indonesian earthquake and tsunami. That was quite a sort of a sobering moment and we did spend about 24 hours of not knowing who it was and it was hard because there's a lot of guys that were on that flight that had families and young kids and things like that and a lot of us sort of thought of them partly first and then you know then we felt guilty afterwards for thinking not thinking of the other guys that actually did lose their lives during it as well. The voice you just heard is that of Natalie Johnston, one of the Australian Navy's most recognised figures, the Navy's first female helicopter pilot. Just four months prior to the NIAS crash, Natalie had been a part of that helicopter squadron. The hardest thing as well, because I knew all of the people who were on the flight, it was a squadron I just left, and, you know, given a difference of four months, it could have been me who was actually there. Beginning this week's episode of The Risk Equation, we joined Natalie almost 10 years into her storied career at the moment she first heard the news of the devastating crash. Yeah, it was a really, um, it was a strange moment, I think. So we were actually, it was during a fleet air on mess dinner that the night, um, because of the time difference and stuff like that, when it happened, that we found out. So I um, found out quite early, so I got a phone call um, to grab the Commodore and start organising stuff. So we pulled everyone out 
and we all found out there'd been an accident and they weren't sure who'd survived and what had happened. It was hard, especially because um, both Paul, Paul was on my pilot's course and I did got my wings with him, so we were quite close and good friends and spent a bit of time together. And um, Jonathan, the other pilot, he was one of my sort of junior, one of the junior guys on the flight and at the squadron that I'd kind of mentored and we'd gone on trips away together and things like that. So we're all quite close and knew each other because only a small unit. And we were very pissed off as well because we didn't know what had happened and I got even more pissed off if I'm allowed to say that. You can bleep me or do whatever. I'll try not to say anything horrible. But um, my um, my mum actually got a phone call in the early hours. She's in WA in the early hours of the next morning from a newspaper reporter or somebody saying, oh, how's your daughter? Because... They'd heard, they had the information they had that there was one female who had been, uh, who was been injured or was missing in the accident. So they had Googled, obviously, seeking female and my name came up um, as the only female pilot in seeking. So um, they rang my mum and my mum, bless her heart, told them to go, go for a walk in a very probably less polite manner. And, um, and then she rang me and said, what's going on? Because I hadn't told her because obviously we didn't know really what was happening and then I told her. So it was a pretty tough weekend, that sort of time, and then to go back. And we still commemorate it now, so we still very much commemorate um, the recognition of those people that lost their lives and it is a big part of where we are in the fleet air arm to make sure that the same mistakes aren't repeated and that's probably a big thing. When they uh, initiated the Board of Inquiry, um, the report that came back had over 200 recommendations um, for systemic changes that could be implemented to try and prevent the errors that ultimately led to that crash. In some ways, that's a reassuring finding in the sense that there were so many things that they felt could be improved to try and minimise the risk for people in that future position. But at the same time, it also makes me acutely aware of the fact that that recommendation only came, I think it was three years after the initial crash. And in that time, you and your mates and other people who had been training in that aircraft and in those squadrons were still having to get into work every day, hop into the seat and take off. And I'm just interested in, in how that incident changed your approach to your work, both in the interim until there was a formal response, but, but after there was a formal response as well. The first part of it, when it first came out that it was... Um not pilot error because everyone always looks to pilots first in, in the instance that it was because in the profile that it looked like it could have quite easily been an aerodynamic effect called vortex ring um, which is what there was an assumption that that kind of was what it was but then obviously after the investigation and they brought out that it was a maintenance error that had come through there was a lot of animosity between maintenance and aircrew. Mm -hmm. 
there was always, you know, in an organisation like that, there's always a bit of us and them. You know, hard workers, the people that fix it, the people that break it, were kind of the two level. So the pilots would always break the perfect machine that the engineers would fix. Um, and they would rather just park it once they're fixed and us not touch it. It was very tough and awkward um, for that. I actually started my instructor's course only a couple of weeks, a couple of months after that. So I stayed back for the funerals and then I went um, over and I actually did my course in the UK. So it was interesting that first flight again, getting back in an aircraft. And I was not sure how I would go. because you always have that doubt about how is this going to affect me how am I going to cope with this and it was still kind of early days there wasn't a lot of I think emphasis on looking after people's mental health and how it was going to affect them when I came back as the fleet aviation safety officer it was one of our big things was to emphasize to air crew and to maintenance the difference between when air crew make a mistake the response and the feedback is instantaneous. If it's not instantaneous, it's one or two minutes later. Like if you uh, over control the aircraft, it responds straight away. If you forget to hit a switch when you're trying to start, it just doesn't start or you get a hot start, but you get a response almost immediately. So to correct that and make a change in your behavior, it's very easy because it's straight away. But for maintenance, like the maintenance that they did on the aircraft, it was, a number, I can't remember exactly how many hours, but it was a number of hours and a number of days and weeks after the maintenance before the accident happened. So there, the basically cause and effect is separated by time, distance, other people being involved and things like that. So it's very difficult for the maintenance guys to clearly understand and see the risk of making decisions that potentially aren't optimal, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. To me, the, I guess the two key factors in relationships that comes out of that from an organisational point of view is guilt and trust. It's, I imagine, from a maintenance point of view, particularly after an incident like that, which had such catastrophic ramifications for people who I'm sure that they were very close to and that you were very close to, there's a tremendous amount of guilt that must come with that when an investigation is showing that whether it's cultural or systemic errors in your processes is that aspect of the arm of the squadron have led to that in either part or in full. And then rebuilding trust between the flight crew and the support structures behind them, particularly when, as you describe it, there's such different experiences of the, uh, the impacts of mistakes. It sounds like a gargantuan task. And I'm just interested in what you felt looking back on it now, were the strategies or techniques uh, or olive branches that were effective at rebuilding a safe culture or a functional culture in, in that squadron or in it just, I guess, in, in the air crews in general or the squadrons in general that were flying that aircraft? I think a big part of it was to try and acknowledge the fact that it wasn't some sort of corner cutting so they can get home early or anything like that. 
there were a number of pilots and a number of aircrew and a number of maintainers that couldn't go back from it because of, especially for some of the maintainers who did get absolutely grilled at the Board of Inquiry, they just couldn't cope with the the impact of that, the feeling of guilt of that their influence in what had happened and things like that. It potentially would have happened no matter if they were there or somebody else was there. You know, the old substitution test where you take somebody else out and put someone else in and see if they would make the same mistake. There was a lot of changes that came through and just in the process of work that they did. Um, but it did come down to a lot of discussions, a lot of sit-down meetings, a lot of clearing the air and almost a change in people like some people moved on and moved out and changed around and went to different squadrons they moved a lot of guys from the 817 squadron maintenance cohort and put them into their other squadrons to try and broaden it to try and break up the potential of father-to-son teaching of potentially suboptimal processes and procedures just because that's the easier thing to do 817 squadron kept winning the navy's McNichol Trophy, which is basically acknowledging you as the best squadron within the fleet air arm. We kept being called on for humanitarian aid, disaster relief. We kept getting called on and we always said yes, the aircraft always went and it always did a good job. So we were always getting congratulated for how great we were at responding and getting airborne. Um, so it was, it, it's a hard it's a hard thing, you know, you can sit back now and say, well, how on earth did that happen? But it's very easy to see when you get, the behaviours get reinforced by that sort of, you know, congratulations and, and hierarchy and emphasis on doing such a good job all the time, then those behaviours will continue because it's the way they see, they can only way they can get the job done. It's it's not really a complacency, is it? It's just a trust in people's competence that comes with repeated success and a minimisation of the, the sheer power um, of uh, fatigue or human error. I'm interested in how all of this experience from your uh, previous history with 817 during its uh, probably, I guess, glory years to a certain extent, its time when it was very well regarded and seen as the, the peak of capability, all the way through to when you were then in charge of aviation safety for the Navy, uh, how your approach was influenced by your recognition of some of the shortfalls that had come from that incident and then some of the successes that had come from uh, the inquiry afterwards? I think from my point of view, going into the aviation safety role, part of my stuff when I jumped into Fleet Air Arm was actually to try and push the acknowledgement that, yes, this happened at 817 Squadron, but these sorts of things could happen at any squadron. <laughs> training squadron whether you're the maritime support helicopter and search and rescue squadron or you're the front end frontline fighter squadron it doesn't matter um, and part of it also was well to just build the understanding that flight safety and the safety within the fleet air arm was not something that annoyed you when you had a flight safety stand down you sat in a cold hangar and it was just somebody up there talking and you just tried to nod off for which is what it kind of had become there was a requirement to do these safety days and do all of this stuff and people found it as an inconvenience and something that they didn't really want to attend so one of the things that I tried to do during my time there was to make it 
something that kind of, you know, was a, wasn't a detract, distraction from your daily routine. It was something that you wanted to go to. So that was a big part of my emphasis. The other part was actually to do a little bit more work in the safety reporting and actually get better quality reports to come through to actually get something out of them. They didn't have, hadn't had any training on what is a good report. So a good report is simply is what happened how it happened and then why it happened and when you're asking the why it happened if you get to a point where you still there's still a question of why ask again so you kept asking why until you ran out of whys and it was hard and there was still a lot of pushback like some of the people that I'd worked with and the senior sailors I'd gone through with were some of the people that when I first turned up sort of 10 years before that um, and it was pretty much 10, 12 years before that time, um, who didn't think women should be in the military, let alone flying helicopters. So I kind of managed to show them how to do it quickly and effectively, and they could see change. They were more likely to do it. And it wasn't about, we'd actually send back to them and say, you've written too much. We don't need this. All we actually needed was these three paragraphs, not, not these five pages you've given me. So they just gone, oh, so I didn't need to do all that work. No, it's not required. And I think when you showed them that the simplicity is what's actually needed and the clarity, you don't need all the additional words, people were more likely to do it. That must have been the nicest phone call for somebody to receive, saying, I'm sorry you filled out too much of the paperwork too effectively. We don't, we don't need that much. I don't think I've ever received that phone call in any time that I've either been in the military or in healthcare. But uh, it's nice to know that it exists somewhere. Yep. I want to talk a little bit about your pathway to become a pilot because you were the first female uh, helicopter pilot in the Navy and that's a historic achievement and I'm interested in in how it came to be that you entered into flight training um, and became a helicopter pilot in the Navy when there, there was no precedent for it before you took that path. No, I didn't actually realise that, Chris, when I first started. <laughs> I grew up in a, a regional Western Australia, uh, in a small town called Cubaling, which, you know, in the standard West Australian small towns, had a roadhouse, a pub and a post office. Um, and I think now the, the post office and the roadhouse is combined, so they've just got the, the two. <laughs> went to school at the next closest town at Narragin. Um, I was fortunate that in my year 11 and 12, uh, there was a high school teacher there, Mr Rod Slater, who developed and bought in an aeronautics program, which has been running at Kent Street High School in Perth for a number of years. And he asked them and bought it down because he was a pilot, he was an enthusiast. Um, so he bought it down to our high school. So I wanted to do something different. I'd looked at being a flight attendant at some point along the lines, I was going to be a truck driver when I first grew up. Truck driver, farmer, flight attendant and thought at some point I might as well just fly them, it can't be that hard. So I did my aeronautics in year 11 and 12 and then um, at the beginning of my year 12 my mum actually saw an advert in the paper 
for win a thousand dollar scholarship to the Australian Defence Force Academy. I thought, oh, I could do with a thousand bucks. That'd be great. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, so we signed up, raced up there. We got in just before the close. Like I think we applied like two days before the closing date. Um, I applied as an engineer because I didn't know women could be pilots in the military. This was in um, 1993. I didn't get the scholarship, so I was a bit devastated, but they did tell me to come back and they asked me to come back and reapply as a pilot. I just happened to be applying to Navy because when I walked in the door at recruiting, the Navy recruiting petty officer was the nicest woman I have met and she won my mum over so that's how I ended up doing 24 years in the Navy pretty much. Out of the six positions that were available at that time and it does make me laugh a little bit when people have a go at quotas and having female positions now but at that time only two of those were open. So went that two could be male or female, the other four had to be male. So that's like, there was two positions. I said, there was two positions. I said, I thought there were six. Oh no, you can apply for, there's two spots that you could get. And I went, oh, okay. So yeah, so things have changed. And like, you know, it's nice to see the other around. And I went, oh, okay, whatever. So I applied and yeah, managed to jump through all the hoops and I went and did flight screening. So I got to go to Tamworth left Western Australia on a big plane for the first time in my entire life, by myself at 17, flew to Tamworth for two weeks and did some flight screening, got myself through that and then came back and was hanging on my HSC results to get into this Defence Academy and I got through. This week's episode of The Risk Equation is brought to you by Altrop Coffee. Altrop is an online coffee marketplace that's helping support local Melbourne businesses and creating a sustainable, fair and stress-free coffee buying experience. All of Altrop's coffees are roasted, ground, packaged and shipped from Melbourne directly to your door. And the prices are a lot lower than you might expect as well. Altrop prices start from just $15 a bag. And that $15 bag is coming from a small, local and sustainable Melbourne roaster instead of your giant supermarket brands. Altrop have set up a 10% discount code exclusive to listeners of The Risk Equation. That code is RISK, like the name of the show. That's code RISK for 10% off at altrop.com.au. And thanks again to Altrop for sponsoring this week's episode. We really appreciate it. Now back to the show. What did you have to do to get one of those two positions? What was the what were the hurdles that had to be jumped through? Oh well, they did a lot of we did you know the it would have been the same for the army stuff with the you know the leadership staff. Was the officer get selection in a room. board? Officer selection board. Yep. So we had yep. to do the officer selection board. Um, you know, someone's on a desert island and who's you know pick all the best traits and all that sort of um, bits just and pieces. For those people who haven't done it, for those lucky people who haven't done it, do you, do, <laughs> do you mind describing what the Officer Selection Board entails and what it was like to do it when you were in Year 12, essentially? Yeah, so it was a bit of an eye-opener. So you've done all the initial psych testing and all the 
weeding out but then when you get to the hospital selection board there's a number of components so there's an individual component where it is like an interview room and they set it up I think four or five people some in uniform some sit at a big long table and you're in a room on a single chair in the middle I was given some great advice which is just say don't lie just and try and bluff your way because they obviously know the answer just tell them the truth fairly intense interview series to do that but then you had a teams event where all the potential candidates got broken up into smaller groups and they gave you a scenario and I think it was probably along the lines of you're on an island or a, a stranded in some place these are the skill sets that you've got this is how you're going to how you're going to manage to find get do a certain task or achieve something and they would watch you. They'd sit around and watch you and decide on how you communicated. They'd look on who took over leadership roles, who was a good follower, who stuck by the guns, who had a good argument about how they discussed it, whether they converted people over to their side and whether you were clear on your decision making. And they would look at all of those things. One thing that you haven't mentioned, I'm interested in whether or not that was a later innovation. I did mine maybe 13 or 14 years ago now, um, where they sort of got the group together of people that you were doing it with and everyone got given a piece of paper and you had to write down on the piece of paper who were the top three people in that group that you would most want to be led by and then who were the top three people you would least want to be led by. And there was lots of significant looks around the group. I often look back at that thinking, I'm not sure if that one would get through muster anymore, but, uh, but it, it, was an it was an effective way of finding out, you know, what was happening behind the scenes, I suppose, for people who were watching externally, but maybe not getting the interpersonal dynamics completely right. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure I, I do recall something like that looking around. And, and I think they used to watch us sitting in the waiting room as well, the way we interacted with each other and who spoke and who didn't speak and who shared information and who didn't share. So it was interesting. But with the additional pilot stuff we had, it was a very unsophisticated machine, which was basically an old, oh, I don't even know what it was, like an old TV screen. And it had a white dot on it and a black circle in the middle and you had to manoeuvre the controls which made a left or right to get the white dot into the circle. Um, I think I only actually passed that because I misheard the instructions the first time round. I thought I had to pass it through the circle as many times as I could um, which I did the first time round and then you got two goes at it and then when you got the second go I heard one of the guys say oh yeah I kept mine in the circle for this long I went oh I'm supposed to keep it in the circle so strangely my accelerated and my ability to learn was exponentially great because um, I kept it in the circle for a long time the second time um, so they went wow this girl can learn at the speed that she needs to learn at. That sounds like it's fairly high pressure when you're first getting in. And you were very young at that stage as well. I can't imagine you'd been under that sort of pressure before uh, at that point in time. How did, you, how did you approach that, being away from home, being sort of somewhere, I imagine, between sort of 17 and 19, and every day having to prove that you could not just learn the skill but learn it fast enough to be worth their time? I was, yeah, I was just 17, so I was probably 17 in a few months, um, and I went over, it, it was interesting, like I was so excited by it all, and I figured, I think part of it was I had nothing to lose. It was challenging, but I had, again, I had some good advice from people who had gone through it beforehand, and they just said, 
make sure you learn, make sure you progress and you take one thing from the previous day and make it great the next day. Don't try and make everything great, but make one thing great. And that was probably a great bit of advice, just to take that one step. And then after learning how to instruct, you know that you only give your student three things to work on because you can't remember anything past that three. So I remember back now, I'd get one of those things they think looked at and I'd write, right, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to make sure tomorrow I don't make that mistake again. Because of that, I managed to get through. And it was exciting. I'd hardly been flying before. I'd only just had... 10 hours flying, which I managed to get through another scholarship that I got. So I hadn't been flying much, so it was great. Like I was going flying every day. It was super exciting. Met a huge bunch of people I'd never met before. Um, we snuck into a few places in Tamworth that I probably wasn't supposed to be because I was only 17, but it's another story. <laughs> Tell me about what the um, what the environment was like at that time for all of you guys training together because you were the first female trainee there going through that, that school at that stage. And how did everyone else feel about that? Your instructors and all the people you were with, was that even an issue or was it just you were there, you're one of us, it's time to get going, we're all in this together? I think because potentially I came from a farming background, a very much boys school you know all about footy and the farm and that's pretty much how I got brought up I did it was I was oblivious to it pretty much let's just put it that way I was probably not really aware that there wasn't many uh, women around um, in the time through flight screening but then when I went on pilots course again my pilots course my actual course had there was four three of us uh, women on it and two that I'd been through this Defence Academy with and there were two girls on the course in front of mine so that was five women in four courses of about 20 so not very big numbers <laughs> when you look at it but um, we had one female instructor Jomeen she was great but she posted and then not long after that the two uh, women on the course in front of ours failed and then within a week the two uh fellow course mates of mine both failed as well so by the end of that week I was all of a sudden the only woman in the whole school apart from the clerks in the office and the medics so I had a had a moment in my instructor's office and went well you might as well just fail me because I'm next I'm the last one so you're obviously just going to get rid of me on this flight and he just went I don't think we should go flying today that so <laughs> we went, no I've got so I was a bit of a mess but I think from that point on, I really had that feeling in the back of my mind. I became more aware that I was on my own. There was a lot of self-doubt that went through both my time at Rough Base Pierce and my time at ADF Hilo School, thinking that, am I here because I'm a woman or am I here because I'm capable? And that was tough. Like, I don't think... It took me a long time to get over that. I think it wasn't probably until I'd finished my Seeking OF operational flying training did I actually accept the fact that I was capable and competent enough to be a Navy helicopter pilot. 
you know, I had a few instructors along the way saying, you know what, Nat, you're just as bad as the boys. So that's always, you know, it's kind of, I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. It's about but as close to a compliment in the military as you ever get, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. So it was interesting, but, you know, it, and it, does, it takes a few moments. And I was, I was fortunate that I had a very supportive family, even though I don't think they understood a word of what I was telling them. Um, and I was in, because I was in West Australia when I was at Pierce, it was home for me, so I could escape home. So I could go home and see my school friends and um, catch up with all of them and do some other things and get away from it all. So that was good. But it does take a big support network. And I wish I'd known about organisations like Australian Women's Pilots Association, about Women in Aviation Australia and a whole bunch of things that could have provided that support when I was going through it. But I didn't really tweak or I didn't realise they were even an option. I think it's always easy to underestimate the importance of having mentors um, who have had similar experiences to you um, when they're always there. You know, like for me, for example, in surgery, uh, surgery has historically been a male-dominated area of medicine, um, and so it's it's easy for me to find lots and lots of people who are very similar to me who I can look up to and say, if they've been through it, then I can push myself and I can get there too. But that's not the case for many uh, women who want to get into the field of surgery. And it's not the case, obviously, uh, for you uh, becoming a helicopter pilot back then. And that can be a tremendously difficult thing to deal with, I imagine. But I imagine for young women coming through the flight school now, it must be very nice for them to be able to look up to you and to people who came after you and know that there's now that model there. And I think you're underselling a little bit in some ways how difficult it must have been when you were the only one left and there was no one to look up to who had done exactly what you'd done or come from a background like you'd come back from or was the same sex as you. Um, I, I think that is a tremendous loss and it shows an extraordinary amount of courage to push through that, particularly at such a young age, I think, when you don't have a lot of self-confidence, none of us do, invariably at that point in time. Interestingly, though, within the Navy itself, and, and Navy kind of struggles to get pilots realise because people go what do you mean you fly in the navy that doesn't make sense so they didn't have a lot so the first women that came through after me were ones that I taught when I was an instructor so there's an eight-year gap between myself and the next pilots that came through navy and there's only been six <laughs> so the navy's had six female pilots and I have I have badges I have badges made up with limited edition and navy wings on it for and I've still got seven, eight, nine, and ten. So I'm waiting for those. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to be still young enough to give that tenth one out before I'm got a walking stick or something like that. But I'm sure that will be a fantastic day, and I hope it come. I hope it comes soon. When when you got your wings, what was that day like? Thinking back to you, sort of in country Western Australia, and your year eleven and twelve aeronautics class. Suddenly, you're there as a certified pilot in the Navy. That must have been special. Yeah, it was. It was special and humorous at the same time. Surprise, surprise, Chief of Navy came to give me my wings, so um, <laughs> all the guys <laughs> went, you wouldn't be here if you weren't here. It was good. It was pretty crazy and memorable in the fact that the one thing I remember completely about it is that right in the middle of the wings presentation. 
garbage truck pulled up and emptied the skip bin right while we're all standing there and we're just going, <laughs> oh my gosh, like this couldn't get any more Couldn't wait an hour. <laughs> no, couldn't wait an hour, just right in the middle of it. And you can see the driver back up and then as he's like about to dump it, look up and see all these people formed up in the hangar. And, and interesting things like, I didn't know, because the instructions on where to attach your wings is so many centimetres above the breast pocket on your ceremonial uniform. The female ceremonial uniform doesn't have a pocket. So I'm going, well, where do I put them? And they're like, oh, we don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Where do I put my wings? Are you telling me that now uh, all wing placement for women uh, is uh, is modelled yep. off what you yep. chose ad hoc on the, on the, ad day. Hoc <laughs> the day? It's all there. It's about there. And then, uh, yeah, same with hairstyles about yep. lot, what you have to do with long hair and short hair and all that sort of stuff. That was all modelled off from yeah. what I decided. Because they all said, they go, oh, now, are you allowed to have your hair like that? Yes, of course I am. And I'm like, excellent. Yeah. There's nothing in the rule book that <laughs> says no. And no one knew any different. So coming off that high of that achievement and that, that training capability and uh, all, all of the, what you've been working toward for a number of years, then the reality of actually doing the job hits. Tell me about how you deal with, uh, how you deal with it when things aren't going right in that sort of setting, about what, what happens when it is a dangerous circumstance or you're not quite in the right headspace or things just aren't the way that you feel like they're meant to be, even despite all of that training that you've been through. Do you have any uh, recollections of that and how you you dealt with it then and then also later down the track? Yeah, I think the biggest one was I, I learned a lot about myself and about um, how I deal with stress. And I found out that even though growing up in high school and things like that, I wasn't much of a crier. It, it turns out that when I'm under a lot of stress and there's a lot going on, that that's how my emotion will come out and I just, um, it just kind of flows out without that control. flying training and this was back when there was no no night vision goggles so we used to do all our overwater stuff at night in the dark so you'd fly out at height and then descend down over water once it's safe once you were clear you weren't going to hit anything pretty much um, and then you drop down to 200 feet over the water and then practice going down to 50 feet to then and the, uh, the aim was to be able to rescue a survivor out of the water at night and that's what we we're training for, to, to pick someone up out of the water at night. It was just starlight and us, and um, so there wasn't a lot of horizon, so you rely on your instruments a lot to see what's going on, and it's pretty dark inside the aircraft. And so communication between all the crew, the, the two front seat and the two back seat, is really important. Um, I made a mistake on my way down. I, I just 
I can't remember if I overcontrolled it or I was too slow or my parameters weren't right and my instructor picked me up on it and sort of had a bit of a, you know, come on Nat, what are you doing? And I was just so annoyed at myself for making that error that I started crying and I was so embarrassed because you could hear it in my voice because I'm a kind of, when, when I cry, it comes out in my voice. I don't, it's not a lot of tears, but you can hear it in my voice and, and I just was so embarrassed. I just stopped speaking. If you think about it, it's dark, you're over water. The person who's flying the aircraft at this time is not saying anything. They've stopped speaking. As we came back, I'm going, ah, stuff that completely. Like, what was I thinking? My instructor stopped me and said, oh, Natalie, I think, I, I don't think you went, you know, we might have to. He says, just, I failed it. Please tell me I failed that sortie because I was so annoyed at myself and for not speaking that I thought I have to have failed that flight. If I haven't failed that flight, there is something wrong. My instructor, who is now a very close family friend of ours because I've spent so much time with him, actually tried to give me a hug at that point oh. and I just went, whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, that's not required. Don't give me a hug. And so it's like, it's weird. He goes, oh, I don't yeah. know what. And they're like, I don't know what to do. And unfortunately, the, the commanding officer at the time reacted quite heavily to that um, because of that failure and didn't let me go to the psychologist at the Navy base where we were at. He got a special psychologist down from Air Force. She was probably the most horrible person I have ever met in my life who told me that I shouldn't be a pilot, that I wasn't capable and um, if I had a... Because I had a plan that if I didn't pass pilot's course and this was my next going to be my career because I thought I don't want to put all my eggs in and then can be completely devastated if I failed and couldn't get through. Like I wanted to be sensible and have a plan B. And she basically told me I didn't really want to be a pilot because I had a plan B. So it was a bit of a knock to say the least. So... I was a bit wary about that, but I was fortunate that there was a lot of instructors. My instructor that I flew with that night and a couple of the other um, pilots on the squadron were really supportive and backed me and, and let me continue and gave me the time I needed to get back in, sort of back in the seat and get my head in the right space. And we had a discussion about where I needed to be and what had to happen and that happened and then I think post that I thought I'm going to it kicked in that I'm going to prove them all wrong and I'm going to show them that this is not that I can do this and so I made an error later on and so tenderly with aircraft and and for flying if you make a mistake the best way to learn from it is you stand up and explain to people what the area is and how you made the mistake. So then they learn from it as well as you. So that's that reinforced learning from any safety mistakes and stuff like that. And that happened when I was doing my test pilot training, just my maintenance test pilot training. We did that and I stood up in front of the squadron and partway through, because I was upset and frustrated with myself, I, that emotional response came out again and I started crying again. But this time, instead of stop speaking, I said, please excuse me, it might be hard to hear, but I'm just going to continue. So I just continued through the blubbering and everything and continued speaking to the whole crowd. And I say the best and the worst thing, after that I had nearly every single member of the crew and the, like the crew, I say the family of 817, pretty much come up and say, 
I respect you so much for standing up and doing that. And unfortunately, because they were all being so nice to me, it made me even more emotional. So it was like, <laughs> stop being nice. <laughs> you don't understand. You're meant to be judging me. <laughs> yeah, you're meant to be judging me. You're meant to be horrible. And I would have felt better then. I could steel myself to that. But this niceness, like I can't cope. So it was, it was kind of that moment and that process and that couple of months taught me that you know I could be myself and it was okay to be a woman and it's okay to show emotion and you know what if the boys don't like it they have to get over it and they will continue and as long as I keep communicating there's no problem with it. It takes a lot to just really acknowledge that it was a, a lesson and that everybody else doesn't make those same mistakes. And I think for me, like it's, you don't see the guys cry because, you know, for me back in, and even when I went, grew up in high school and things like that, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, it, it wasn't acceptable for boys to cry. You know, they got called names and, and got made fun of. So most of them just got angry. Um, and that still has the same effect. It's still debilitating to stop them thinking straight and you can't consciously make a good decision when you're in that state. Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat to me this evening. It really is such an honour to, to talk to you and uh, to have someone of your calibre join our show. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time out of your evening. Thanks very much, Chris. I've really enjoyed it. Before we end the show, another thanks to Altrop for sponsoring the show this week. Visit altrop.com.au and use the code RISK for 10% off your purchase of coffee. If you haven't already, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Leaving feedback is a great way to let us know you enjoy the show and let other people see the podcast and join the community. So thanks again for listening to this week's episode and for your ongoing support. Mm-hmm.